four weeks ago, my wife and I, we actually traveled with our son and our daughter-in-law to Poland and ultimately to Ukraine. We were very sparing with our videos and pictures, and honestly, the pictures I did take, uh, I always asked permission and said, uh, if you wouldn't mind, it will give us an opportunity to tell your story. And for a lot of them, especially the, the wives and these moms, they wanted their stories to be heard, the bravery of their husbands and their sons that were staying behind to defend their homes and to defend their country. And so uh, today we're going to tell a, little, a bit of a story. I'm going to invite my wife, Shauna, to go ahead and come on up and join me. Uh, Shauna and I actually met March 20th, 1988. So yeah, that was a long time ago, but I was 19 and she was 21. I always have to point out she was the older one. But we have, uh, so the 34th anniversary of our meeting actually happened on March 20th, and we were in Ukraine, and I can just tell you as a, 19 and 21 year old, we'd never imagined that our future might hold something like that, but I can't imagine anyone more beautiful or better to have by my side for this experience. Uh, Sean and I have been married for almost 33 years now. We have four sons, literally living coast to coast in uh, the U.S., and just to put your mind at ease, I will be watching the clock because uh, I realize that uh, you, there's only so much you can absorb, and we are going to work really hard to give you the highlights. I mean, we just wish we could just give the whole experience to you. And uh, actually, uh, the, we're going to do this in a question-answer format, and the questions were actually provided by our very own Katie Hagan, or she's known on the cake in the local Fox network as Katie Tobby. And so she worked, she provided the questions uh, for us, uh, helped us craft those. She couldn't be here. She's actually up at Mayo Clinic with her husband, Dylan, who's going through a very intensive six-week treatment um, to, to fight cancer for him. There's, there's a whole story with that. Uh, Dylan, I know you're watching. So glad to have you guys join us. And when I'm up there to be with you for those three days, uh, right after Easter, I expect to be thoroughly entertained, okay? I don't need this whole cancer treatment, boo-hoo, like whatever. So, <laughs> see, this is, the only reason we have friends, by the way, is because they like Shauna and they tolerate <laughs> me. So... Uh, that's just been pretty much our life. So uh, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to jump in. So the first question uh, for us this morning is, so this whole, whole mission began with your son. How did your son get the idea to take this trip? And so we actually have a picture. So uh, this is our oldest son, Josh. Man, he's got a great chin. Uh, so this, was, this is he and his wife. Uh, and uh, Josh was watching the news. They're actually in Menlo Park, California. Josh is at Stanford Med, and his wife is a pediatric specialist at Stanford Medical Center. And he was watching the news, and he told me, uh, he gave me a call. He said, Dad, I, I saw this, and I, I, I got to do something. And the next day, he bought a ticket. I'm like, well, I want to go. So that's how this all basically started. And uh, so that, that's how he just got the idea. And we, we raised our kids. We were pretty involved either in the local community, but also abroad in Haiti and Africa, and we worked to raise them to when they became men, when they became adults, to not just uh, take everything for themselves, whether it's from their careers or their resources or their, their time, but to use that for other people as well. And, and I'm just, uh, we couldn't be prouder of him. So the, the next question is, for anyone just dropping everything to leave the country for 10 days, it would be very difficult. So why did you feel it was worth the time and sacrifice? And so I'll, I'll answer initially. 
because initially, which we'll talk about, Shauna was not invited on, on the trip, and that became a whole thing. But uh, when, we began, uh, when we began New Life Wichita five years ago, we launched with the vision and the dedication, the commitment to be a church and be a catalyst of spiritual and social change makers. And we did this because the example of Jesus and his most devoted, closest followers is that you cannot separate the two. That if you're just going to focus on like knowledge and theology and doctrine, but you don't do anything, your faith is worthless. And so we, we built this community, launched this community with the idea we can't separate the two, that our beliefs should inform our actions. And so for us, we, just, we knew we cannot truly love God without actively and sacrificially loving our neighbor. And not even just how we would love, uh, we want to be loved, but love as God would love us. So uh, the next question, Katie, I, I suspect the wives, uh, one also being a mom, had some thoughts on their husbands and son heading to a war zone. Uh, what did those conversations look like? So, Shauna. This is terrifying. <laughs> My wife is an introvert. She would rather go into the areas where they're still bombing Kiev right now than be up here right now. Yes. So just so you know. Um, so my initial response was, no way, <laughs> you're not going. Um, that was selfish of me, to which I ultimately, at the end of that day, said, I'll leave it in your hands. No, no, no. What she said is, I won't stand in your way. <laughs> I think that was on a Monday or a Tuesday, and um, by Friday, I... I I was just angry. I could not get a piece about it. I, was, I didn't want him getting hurt, obviously, or my son, but also I didn't want to be left home without him. I wanted to go if he was gonna go. So, and we never really even considered me going. I didn't know if I could get time off of work, the expense of me going. And then um, the Sunday before he left, uh, he asked if, if I wanted to go. He said, a friend of ours, donated his airline miles and we can have a ticket if you can get off work you can go and from that moment i didn't even know if i had work off yet but from that moment i felt a peace and i was okay yeah and, and a big part of it too is she just want to make sure i didn't do anything stupid so exactly. <laughs> uh, so we're a great team like that and the interesting thing was we found out later on that uh, our son josh and his wife anna had a bit of a similar thing because again yes. josh just kind of got the ticket and then she's like, what the heck? Like, I, so, and so we, we worked through it, and we'll probably both need some counseling after, but we, we, we made it happen. Well, uh, besides taking financial resources for people on the ground, what else were you taking with you and, and why? And so some of, many of you saw this on social media. We were taking trauma kits or, again, affectionately IFACs, individual first aid kits, because these were, were desperately needed. We had people in our community that donated, like, extra large suitcases uh, for us to be able to take those with us. That's one of them. Now, the amazing thing we'll talk about later when we handed these off is they, they had a difficulty of believing we would leave these suitcases. They were going to empty these packs out. We're like, no, 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 take these suitcases because one of these suitcases about their average wage would be like two or three weeks of their salary and uh like no 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 the, the people gave these knowing that they wouldn't be coming back and then then they got excited because there's obviously tons of people trying to evacuate and so they would get these kits where they needed to go and then actually give these suitcases to these women and children that are trying to to get out and take some semblance of their life with them and just as a side note, too, we, we put a letter in each of these IFACs to let 
whoever received it know, like, hey, here's who this is from, this community in, in, in Wichita and these churches, and we know what's happening, we care about what's happening, we're praying, but we're also taking action to do something to help. And an invitation, like, we would love to hear your story. And I've already gotten a, a couple of emails from guys on the front lines. And we know for a fact that already at, at least two lives have been saved from these kids. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, uh, the question, what was it like navigating airports in Amsterdam and Poland? I'll let you start with that one. So Amsterdam Airport is very confusing, especially when all the signs and everything are not in English. <laughs> Thank goodness for our app on our phone that we are able to talk into it to see you know, what it is and where we're going. Uh, one of the things in that airport, we had a very short uh, layover, and so usually you know, your bags are transferred, your check-in bags are transferred to the next plane, but we actually had to get our check bags and recheck them in uh, to go to Warsaw. So that was a little stressful. And, and I will say by that time, we were both, because it was an overnight flight, we were a little tired. We were not at our best in that moment. It's just yeah. like, like I actually got a selfie picture showing like Amsterdam behind me, but I'm alone in that picture because <laughs> she went to the bathroom like, we need some space yes. like you. So I didn't sleep the whole trip, so yeah, I was yeah. grumpy. <laughs> and, and I did, so she's mad at me for sleeping. Yes. So, uh, but yeah, it, it was a little crazy. And again, not as many people spoke English as we thought. Nobody they had, or that we had been told, it was like, oh man, we're, we are in trouble. So, yeah, so then we arrived, uh, once you arrived in Warsaw, because that was the primary airport in Poland we flew into, uh, what was that like and what happened after you landed? And so, again, we, we were tired at that point. Uh, we, the, the Amsterdam airport was really stressful. We thought we were going to have two hours longer than we did but again getting through passport control we went through twice we didn't <laughs> they had somebody sent us again uh, so and uh, it was crazy so we get through customs we get our van we load up the van and then we leave the airport and as soon as we drive off the airport property because our son and daughter-in-law they're like another hour and a half behind us because they were coming from california i'm driving off and i thought I have made a horrible mistake. I can't, I can't read any of these signs. I don't know what any of them mean. Fortunately, you do drive on the left side, so. The right side. Yeah, on the right side. Yes. On the right side. On the right so, side. <laughs> so Shauna, because my, she's immediately pulling up Google and she's like Googling Polish street signs. And she's like, okay, this means this, this means this. That was actually a really fun hour yeah. we had together because we were laughing because we obviously look like tourists and um, just the fact that nothing looked normal. And so, yeah, I'm telling him, that means don't park, don't, you know, so. It's like, uh, one way, fun. one way! So, <laughs> well, to uh, help visualize where you were once you were in Warsaw, can you give us a sense of how you were positioned and to respect what was happening in the region? And so uh, there's a map up. You should be able to see it online, too. So at the very top, left, you see the end of the word Warsaw, and then Lublin, uh, where we ultimately were going. And so then you can see off to the right. So when we, about the time we arrived, this was the Russian activity of what was going on in the country at the time. So the bright red areas were showing uh, Russian control. You've got Crimea to the south. And so that, that gives you an idea. And again, the ultimate destination was we, where we were headed was Lublin. 
um, down just off there to the left, right above. Right the by the border. Poland, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's where we were headed. We were trying to get as close to the border as, as we could, and Lublin was a very strategic city to go to. So uh, once, you're, uh, once you're, you had your son and daughter-in-law and supplies loaded, you got them and all your supplies loaded, headed to the city of Lublin, uh, what happened to the rest of that day? So we actually didn't get into Lublin until uh, about, about 5 o'clock. And at that point, again, Sean already said, like, she was exhausted. Our oldest son, uh, part of what he was working on was getting uh, at least one, the goal was three, but at least one plane load, 60,000 pounds of medical supplies into the country. And he, he just was having a bit of a nightmare of an experience. And so he had to stay to, to just all these details and people not following through. And so he ended up staying back to, to work on that. Shauna stayed back to rest, and then my, my daughter-in-law and I went to go have this initial meeting, meeting with our Polish team in one of the six shelters. And so uh, basically it was a chance to sit with them. This is Lublin at night, the city where we were at. And so it was a, a chance to sit down and just have a conversation. What do the next few days look like? So the next question is, so this was your first real face-to-face -face contact on the ground in a different culture. What was that experience like? So, do you want to start or do you want me to? Sure. Um, so, it, the, the first day was very overcast and gloomy and kind of typical what you would expect. Uh, it was like cliche, like you're somehow right. in Eastern right. Europe, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, the city obviously looks different than Western cities. Um, not tall, there aren't any skyscrapers or anything, and uh, the streets are narrow, and people park on the sidewalks, and they park every which way. Um, I remember walking, we were going to meet um, in Yaroslav. one, Yaroslav, yes, and uh, just walking down the road, I would smile to people, and, and nobody smiled back. <laughs> it wasn't that they were rude, they just weren't overly friendly, and I think but I think probably a better word would be they were just serious, very serious people. Yeah. And then for me, it was, uh, there, there definitely, again, was the, the, the language barrier. And that, uh, so we were using this translator app a lot. I quickly picked up, so that very first meeting that I had with my daughter-in-law and her team, uh, I realized I'd kind of created a, a cultural error because I was in that Western American mindset I was already feeling the weight of like, okay, we've got this many days here, we've got this much, we want to get as much done as we can, and it is Western mindset, like we've got things to do, and so we go and we get into this shelter, we're sitting down, we're having a meal, and then I immediately kind of start talking about, so what are you thinking about tomorrow, the next day, and I could tell that my, my host kind of like leaned back a little bit, and <laughs> like, so do you, do you want to go ahead and talk about that first, and because in that culture, First, you, you sit, you, you have tea or you have coffee together and you have a meal together and you like just be together before you just jump into business. So the, the relational piece was part of it. And then, then my bell got really rung where in the midst of this conversation and eating, uh, I realized, so a meal had been prepared and was being served to us and I thought these were members of the church. And then I realized that this was a refugee wife and a mom and her daughter that were preparing 
my, our meal and serving me. And that, that made me so uncomfortable. And I just, it just felt wrong. But at the same time, it, it would have been an insult to not let them, them serve me. So it was a, a very stretching an experience. Uh, the ne next question is leading up to the trip. You had some ideas as to what you're going to do, but as you moved into your first days, what went as planned and what went different? And so I, I'll lead out on this one. Our original plan, honestly, was we had this great big van and we, we just wanted to go to the border, get as many refugee women and children as we could, and then and, and get them to shelters or get them to safety. However, our, our Polish handle, Yaroslav, who you'll meet a little bit later, he he was just masterfully handled us and and persuaded us to for them it's like we have people like can, that can go like that would be a waste of your time and what they really wanted us to do was to just go spend time in the shelters that that almost overnight this group of churches like got into place the shelter that i met that first night had been a law firm three stories tall with multiple rooms the law firm emptied it out, said, we're going to give this to you as a church to use as shelters. And they emptied their stuff out and they were bringing supplies within like a matter of days. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they just wanted us to just go be in the moment with these women and children, to listen to their stories, to give them an opportunity to speak about what they were experiencing and just be with them. And so as our, actually one of our Ukrainian contacts said, I don't want people to know what's happening. I want people to feel what's happening. And so that's what they, they wanted. And then the other thing that didn't go as planned, again, is our son. He just got almost entirely consumed with getting this plane load of supplies over because it, it just, again, it was just a very, very difficult process. Anything you wanted to add to that? Okay. So the first few days you spent primarily in shelters with refugees in Poland. Can you describe what you experienced and how it affected you? Um, okay, that, that was for me, that was my day that I uh, knew that this was something very special. Um, I remember we, it, the shelter that we visited was in Lublin, but the outskirts, and um, we drove up and there's no numbers on the house. We did have uh, an interpreter with us, Sana was her name, and um, we went to this one house thinking it was the one, and there was this really big barking dog. And uh, He was the size of a wolf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Chad just gets out to go see if this is the house, which that really made me nervous, but it was not the house. I don't know if somebody was there and directed you. Yeah, the wolf finally got the <laughs> owner out. Yeah, it was the one next door. Okay. So we end up going into this, um, it's a two-story house, and uh, we walk in and there's families living upstairs that are refugees and then families living downstairs. And at first we just, we didn't know who was related to who and didn't really know what was going on. There were two women in the kitchen trying to fix breakfast. Um, and I just remember peeking into one of the rooms, which had uh, two sisters, five the children. The one sister had two kids, the other had three kids and she was two months pregnant. Right, so kids, but I remember looking in and their beds, which a lot of them were just on the ground, but they were all perfectly made. So, you know, they, 
it was not just, uh, they weren't just lounging around. They get up, they make their bed, and um, that's what, and Sana was with us, and she just started asking them questions. Chad would want to know certain things, and then she would, she would uh, say it in Polish or Ukraine, whichever, okay. <coughs> excuse me, and, um, sorry. <coughs> So then we ended up taking this family shopping. All they had was basically what was on their backs and um, they, they got into this house the day before. And so I'll let you, <coughs> sorry, okay. I'll come back to so, it. So uh, the day before and we started talking to them, turns out both of their husbands were soldiers still on the front lines. Uh, the sirens had gone off, the, the warning sirens near their homes, they'd gone into the shelters, Russians bombed, when they came back out, their homes were just obliterated. And so they just grabbed up some scraps that were laying around, some paper bags, and their husbands were like, you have to leave. And so got the husbands and their children gone, again, the one, she's two months pregnant. It was over 20, it was about 30 hours of trains and walking just to get to the border, and then forever to get over the border. And then they were able to make it to this shelter. And so we basically took them to a mall that was about 25 minutes mm -hmm. away and went shopping. Did you want to jump I'm back in? Now. Sorry. Okay. Um, I got you, baby. Thank you. So we took them shopping. And um, what I remember a lot um, is Karina. She's 16, 17 year old girl. And um, she's very quiet the entire time, did not get a lot of emotion out of her. Um, the little, the little we did, I mean, she was very appreciative, but just, she kind of just looked shell-shocked, which I can only imagine. I remember, um, they were so appreciative of, we were trying to get them, uh, they just wanted a bag, uh, like a suitcase to carry things in. That's all they were asking for. So we got them supplies, um, and then Chad had mentioned, you know, how about a small toy for each of the little kids? They did not want to do that. They, they felt like that was overstepping, and we ended up doing it anyways. Well, and the way I said it to them, because, again, these are people, I mean, I don't want to say they're, they're proud, but, like, they don't want, like any of us, like, they feel almost guilty, like, I don't want a handout, like, I'll, I'll work, I'll do, like, we just, and the way I said it to our interpreter is that we're just trying to treat you mm -hmm. the way, I said as a, as a man, I, I just want us to treat you the way I hope somebody would treat my wife and my children if we were in the same circumstances. So if you let us do this, we've got people back home that have sent us with resources, they want this to happen, and so we, we, we know that this is hard, but let us treat you because someday in the future God may give you the chance to help somebody else, just let us help you. And then they opened up more to do, do right. that. And then, you know, like even things like undergarments that they didn't have anything. So we were able, we spent several hours there able to get everything they needed, minutes for their phones. phones. That way they could speak to their husbands in Ukraine. <clears throat> but what made this the most memorable for me was getting back to the shelter and um, we were saying our goodbyes praying with them, and uh, 
Chad just started talking to Natasha, which was one of the moms, basically saying, you know, we are so sorry this has happened to you. We have people that are praying for you. Um, and I could tell standing behind Natasha was Natasha's niece, who is Karina. She's the one on the far right. Yeah, the far right. And she was trying not to cry, which again, I didn't see any emotion all day. And she was trying to hold it in. And then she just put her hands over her face like this. And as they're just interpreting, and I just walked over and I just hugged her. And I hugged her, I thought, for quite a while. And I started to let go and she just grabbed on and wouldn't let go. I'd lost it. That was, and then that, at that moment, I realized what these people are truly up against. They walk away from nothing. Their home is gone. She doesn't know if she'll ever see her dad again. And um, for me, that was a pivotal moment. Yeah. Uh, Chad, you had a memorable interaction at one of the shelters. It involves special soup in your tattoos. Tell us about that. Uh, for those of you that are on social media, I posted yesterday, I made this... Like it's like everybody there eats it in both Ukraine and Poland is borscht and it's delicious by the way and we you know we walked into a shelter and again trying to be in the moment uh, the refugees asked like would you like would you like some I'm like absolutely I don't know what it is but I'll eat it and they were very happy with that to sit and talk and they made us sit and and there was another man uh, that was there. And as we were talking, and our interpreter had to go help my, our daughter-in-law went to see some of the children as a doctor, and so it was just me and this guy. Shauna was in and out of the room, but we started talking. I started using my app, and it uh, turns out that he and uh, all these women and children, um, all these other women are, were married, and these, these couples are all friends in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. From the same church. From the same church in eastern Ukraine. And when the war started, uh, the, the deal was is that if you have three or more children, you, you could actually go with your family. And they happened to have three or more children, and these other husbands kind of made a pact with him, like, no, you go and you make sure that our wives and our children are safe. And so this was one of the kids' chubby, <laughs> chubby cheeks. Uh, and I'm sitting there talking. So basically, he was the, the man of the group to, to make sure that the women and children were taken care of. And then uh, he asked me about the tattoos because, I mean, the, the letters, everything's different. And, and, you know, these tattoos, for those who know me, these are reminders to me. Um, but one said, the question is, why are you afraid? The other is, what does love require of me? But to sit with an individual, look a man eye to eye who has, again, like lost, left everything behind and he's now in this situation when I explained to him this one is to remind me that no matter what the circumstances God can be trusted but to look him in the eye and say that and when then we just sat there and quiet he just kept nodding and then that the other what does love require of me that that's just the driving question of life it is a Jesus follower of like what does love require of me and just that whole interaction apparently our interpreter told us when we were leaving said apparently quit created quite a buzz i didn't know because i can't understand what they're saying but like <laughs> the word got around but for them it became an encouragement 
but I, you know, still the fact knowing I was going to be able to get back on a, home, a plane and go home to safety, you know, it's easy <laughs> to trust God no matter what the circumstances, because my circumstances are pretty good. So, uh, and by the way, that borscht was awesome. And I will say, Ukrainian women will love it when you compliment their cooking. <laughs> I, that, that also won me a lot of friends. Uh, she, so she's like, you want some more? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, so uh, we, towards the end of the week, you posted on social media that you would not be posting in the next few days. What was that about? And that was that we had made the decision to cross the border into Ukraine and, con and connect with two of our primary contacts. Uh, so question, Shauna, how did you feel about this decision to cross into Ukraine? Well, so that Sunday before we left and I found out I was going to go, um, unbeknownst to me, he already knew that there was a possibility we were going to go into Ukraine. So at that moment, I was not thrilled. However, after getting there and speaking with the people in Poland and um, just being in the environment, knowing that they weren't going to allow us into a place that was not safe, I was ready to go. I, there was no hesitation then. Uh, I was probably most nervous that we weren't going to be allowed to go in. Uh, we got there at 8, at the border at 8 in the morning. We did not actually pass through until 2.30. And, you know, we sat in the seat where they, you don't say anything. And that was nerve-wracking. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, yeah, I was so proud of Shauna because uh, it, it is a war zone. It probably helped that we didn't actually know in that moment that the day before they bombed outside of the city that we were headed to, Lviv. Uh, but we would have gone anyways because that's who we are. And I just, I, I actually had a moment like, I just, like, I didn't think I could love you anymore. Because like, even our kids, and I'm calling them kids even though they're 30, like, they were really hesitant. And we actually delayed a day because of them. And the next day, Sean was like, if they're not wanting to go today, we're going. They go do whatever. <laughs> like, I love you. So, so we, we went in. We wanted to hand deliver these IFACs. We wanted to get in these medical supplies. Uh, but again, to post any real-time information would have put us at risk and our people, which again, I, I will have to say that, you know, I've traveled to many countries when I was in the Navy, but they were friendly countries. We, I've been on missions trips. The most difficult thing, at least for me, was to get my mind, keep in my mind, we are in a war zone. And, 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 and it genuinely is. It's just, a, it's a whole different environment. Again, the, Russia had launched that missile strike from the Black Sea onto Lviv. The following Sunday, Russia launched another attack there to a training facility. And so uh, the, this next, our version of what's going on in Ukraine has largely been crafted by news media outlets. What was your experience being there in person, like the drive to Lviv and once you reach the city and talking to people on the ground? So you saw the particular checkpoints with the big metal, looks like jacks. So we had to pass through about 10 of those from the border to um, Lviv. And that was, I, I wasn't scared, but I was nervous, I think, because our interpreter, Victor, he said that he asked us to all put our uh, passports, pass them up to Chad, who's in the front seat, and he told us to basically sit in the back and don't say a word, let him do all the talking. And so every time we would come to one of these checkpoints, I would, I just kept, because they all, you know, all the men have AK-47s and you're just, they are looking in the car to see if you have anything, and they talk to you, and you don't know what they're saying. So that was a little stressful. Yeah. 
They, uh, in fact, one of the checkpoints, our interpreter told me, the guy apparently asked me three times, are you really here from the United States to help? And he was just looking to see if I would somehow react to what he was saying, because then there'd be a question, well, how do you know, understand my language? And so it was, it was in, intense. And uh, there's just a real lack, of, a real distrust there. Mm-hmm. If they don't know you, even going into the coffee shop, we had to show our passports mm-hmm. uh, when in Ukraine. And very interesting, there's a particular word, if they feel like you might be Russian, there's a particular word they tell you to say, and Russians cannot pronounce this particular word. And if you, if you reply and you say it wrong, you're going to be asked, answering some questions in a dark place. So it was, it was intense, but the, clearly they didn't have to worry about it. whatever you say, I'm not going to be able to pronounce, so it's okay. Uh, so the other thing that I noticed, uh, oh, is that there, apparently during wartime, there are no rules of the road. And for those of you that have ridden with me, I, I could fit in. Uh, like, there's no speed limit. Like, our driver, he was driving, like, I don't remember the kilometers, but like 90 miles an hour when we were on the open roads. I'm like, I love this guy. So, and there were trains and trolleys going through that are older than both, like, Sean and I uh, in the cities. It was just incredible. But uh, one of the things that uh, we heard on the ground is the stories told to us by refugees. Uh, And for example, one of the things about how the Ukrainians were treating the Russians, some of this made the news, some of it didn't, about how they had set up this whole system where soldiers, Russian soldiers that were captured, they would let them call home to their mothers to be able to tell their mother what was really happening because what Russia was telling them was completely a lie. So they had to call, if they would call home and tell their mothers what was happening and have their mothers come to the, come and pick them up, <laughs> they would let them go back to Russia. And uh, well, Putin didn't like this, so he ended up shutting that down. The other thing that they were doing is Ukrainians were working with the Red Cross to contact families of identified soldiers that had been killed and that they would let them come and get the bodies of their son or their husband to take them back to Russia to give them a proper burial. Uh, so the Ukrainians, it's just been amazing how they have worked to like really be like way up here and how they've handled it. Uh, but then also that uh, some family members were being loaded into vans and taken to Russia and not heard from, but they're being told, hey, we're gonna take you to safety and, and we'll get you to the border, and they get in these vans or these trucks, and then they're just not heard from again. So these were some of the things that we were, were hearing. Uh, you arrived and stayed that Saturday night in Lviv. What was that like? Um, and just for the sake of time, I'm going to keep us moving. So uh, we, we, uh, we, had to, we had to get to our hotel and checked in before curfew because there was a curfew. And if you're out after curfew, again, you're, you're not going to be leaving Lviv for a while. Uh, and so we checked into this place. And uh, it was, uh, it, I will say it was interesting. I think they opened it before it was ready. Yeah. Uh, 230 volts. We're like 110 here in, in, uh, in America as far as electricity. Two, 230 there. So I'm pointing that out because along, however they constructed this, this room that we stayed, I'm like, this would not pass OSHA standards because <laughs> there's like a light strip in the wall runs along the shower and there's no like sh- wall to the shower yet. So the water's like splashing. I'm like, I don't want this to be the way we die in Ukraine. Like, this is not glorious. So uh, it, it was an experience. But uh, as far as then what happened the next day, which was Sunday, uh, the Ukrainian people feel very, uh, 
they feel a great deal of their pride, of pride for their country. They want you to experience it. And again, to take time, I think we, we've got a video in a coffee house uh, our guide took us to. So this, you actually go down underground. This was like a time where people would meet covertly and you needed to hide. And here's how they make coffee in Ukraine. No, and by the way, only at this, spot. at this particular place with a <laughs> flamethrower. So uh, this isn't like your little butane tor- torch from Ace Hardware. So it was, so this is how he's burning the cream on top of the coffee. But this is the most famous coffee house in Ukraine. And um, the Lviv is considered the western capital of Ukraine. And so Victor took us here. He wanted us to experience that. Right after that, we loaded up medical supplies. I think that's the next picture and, uh, or video. We took the medical supplies to, that my daughter and son, or the son and daughter-in-law had been able to carry with them. We took them to the hospital to hand deliver those. And then after we got back from all of that, do we have a video of the hospital? Yeah, he was pretty, yeah, so this was us. Uh, I will tell you, this was, I had, was trying to be really discreet, even though you can't tell, but when he realized I was taking a video, I, he did let me go. But it was like, again, we were trying to capture as much as we could and be discreet. Um, then we visited, after we got back in the car, we drove two hours northeast to a city called Lutsk. And at Lutsk, here is a video. This is a supply hub for what's called the TDF or the Territorial Defense Force. These are basically government-sanctioned militias. So you basically have the regular army, the TDF, and then you got just the regular guy like me, like where they give you an AK-47 and some bullets, say, defend your home. Uh, and so these individuals uh, are, are supplying, um, this is where are the med kits that we took got into, and within 48 hours, they had them on the front lines in the hands of these men and women. Uh, that we're fighting to defend the country. You wanted to mention something about the supply. Uh, So um, in one of the rooms they took us into their um, giant uh, camouflage netting that uh, you see everywhere at checkpoints that they cover everything with those. Yeah, that's them. Um, Basically, everybody does something um, to help out. And those were made by shredding t-shirts and tying them together. And so I just, that was to me just crazy to think that that's how they make those. Yeah, so again, the checkpoints of the soldiers, so these are all handmade. And the woman that was taking us through, you could just tell she had a great sense of pride Mm -hmm. because I I feel like she was the boss. Um, Everything was organized and all this handmade. They're they're handmaking cook stoves there so that the soldiers and the fighters could could cook food out there. Uh, I think the thing that was so unsettling was where this is at is actually a community center for children. So it was a two-story building, so you've got paintings on the walls and pictures of kids on zip lines and all that, and they've had to turn it into a tool of war. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, to, keep, to keep moving, I'm sorry, I'm watching the time. Uh, while in Ukraine, you had a Ukrainian, ha- Ukrainian handler and guide. Uh, can I just tell about Go him? Right so uh, this, his name is Victor. Uh, actually, it's a picture of the, the man with his family, him. So Victor uh, was, uh, he is a Ukrainian version of me, which is a little scary. We met, only knew him for like 15 minutes because we got over the border, to transferred the med kits, loaded into his car, and like right off the bat, uh, he, he speaks pretty good English. He speaks five languages. He said, uh, you, you're just going to be here for two days, 
and you brought all this? <laughs> like, yes, we're Americans. That's what we do. We, we need a lot of stuff. So, uh, but part of it was supplies. But uh, we get to driving, and like 10 minutes in, I sit in the front seat with him because I'm, I'm the elder dude, I guess. So I'm talking with him, and he shares with us pretty quick. Like He's a self-trained, self-trained computer engineer. Already, he works for a company in, South, in Florida. And in talking about his family, because I'm asking, he makes a comment about how he's the smartest one in his family. <laughs> and, and he begins to explain why. And then like five or ten minutes later, he kind of loses track of where we are. I, th- I said, I thought you were the smartest one in the family. And so we hit it off really quick. And uh, one of our conversations, he asked me, in America, are, are women offended if you open the door for them? And I go, that's a complex answer. <laughs> like... <laughs> And, and he just was talking about this. There's a Ukrainian woman, like, that they're all part of a friend group. And he went to open the door, and she got really offended and whatever. And, and he's like, I just feel what a gentleman should do. And I go, well, again, we, we talked about that. But then I just said to him, because this happened like two or three times where she protested against him. I said, well, next time, just stand there and say, open the door for me, you know. Or <laughs> she got mad because he was... She, he was carrying one of her suitcases or whatever. I said, next time, this like, well, here, carry my suitcase. <laughs> For whatever reason, you're not laughing that hard, but he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I thought he was going to drive off the road, but he was a great guy. But so here's a guy, but the key thing to know about him is when the Russians were working to take over Crimea in 2014, he was speaking out about this. He lived in eastern Ukraine. He was arrested by the Russians and taken and tortured for almost a month. And then his wife, who you saw in the picture, uh, what the way he said it is, my wife saved my life. Because she left their baby with family and took public transportation to get to this area to, to collect his body. She was convinced he was dead. And then somehow through asking around or whatever, found out that he was alive and then actually went to the head guard in charge of this interrogation facility and somehow persuaded him to let her husband go. And it's just an amazing story. We'll share the link. He gives a whole story about that. Um, but he, we became quick family. In mm-hmm. fact, soon after this, we said goodbye, but we didn't know we were saying goodbye because he was getting emotional. Victor, I saw you were getting emotional. Uh, he, and like, we went upstairs to look at some of this TDF facility and came back, he was gone. And I like texted him, bro, where did you go? And he's like, well, I gotta do it. So he liked goodbyes as much as I did, but he is a brother now. Mm-hmm. And um, he, when the bombs first started dropping, he immediately got his family and others to the border and to safety, quit his job to volunteer as a chaplain, which in that country means you go in, you get people out of these hot spots, you get them to safety, and then you also deal with spiritual and mental needs as, as well. So an incredible uh, thing. So I, I gotta, we got to keep moving because I don't want to keep you guys here um, much past our normal ending time. But uh, from before the trip, you provided people the opportunity to give towards this effort. How much funding has been gathered so far and how you've been able to use that to make a difference? Uh, I'm, I just... It's so odd. We have had such a wonderful le- level of generosity, and we have uh, raised over thirty-five thousand uh, dollars towards this work in Ukraine. Yeah. And it, 
Again, a big shout out to Hope Church and Grace Point here in Wichita. We had a couple of other churches that contributed some, part of the North Point Network. These funds gave us the ability to move into and through Poland and Ukraine. It enables to purchase food and supplies for refugees, for others. Uh, we already shared about the shopping experience where these dollars enabled us to just go and give this family some dignity and allow them to get coats and shoes and undergarments and get the basic needs and suitcases. Uh, and also, uh, this would include, too, we've got a picture of a young couple. It's the wedding picture of Jan and Anya. Uh, this is an amazing young couple. They've been, only been married a couple of months. Uh, they had to put off their honeymoon because of the war. Anya is actually a school counselor, was working full-time. She quit her job so that she could focus full-time on serving these children who, for example, uh, if you're with them, if they hear a jet go by overhead, they immediately begin to panic and say, we have to get to safety because they're so traumatized by what they experienced. So she quit their job. No, I mean, we, we went to their apartment. It's like, it's like a shoebox. And we went and we had cookies and coffee with them and just talked about the work because they're helping lead the work with the refugees. And so we gave them some money just to bless them. Um, we've also transferred $20,000 to be put into uh, two key efforts. Uh, the first is $5,000 to the core leadership team that is like raised up and operating these shelters. And they're doing an amazing amazing job because they didn't just provide a space they're bringing in counselors they're bringing in teachers they're creating programs for the children they're getting them set up to get back into schooling uh, so we did that the primary pastor who leads that got a picture of him he's the young guy in the middle I mean he looks like he's 16 he's actually in his early 20s he is a genius he is so smart and I think this picture captures his heart like like when you talk to him, like he, it's clear how smart he is, but he loves these people, he loves these kids, and he's the one that's leading this. Uh, the next is we channeled $15,000 to what's being given to what's an organization called C4U, or Christians for Ukraine. Uh, it's led by a couple I mentioned earlier, that's Yaroslav on the left, and his wife Natasha. C C4, as you can tell, they're getting humanitarian aid into the country, into trusted hands. Uh, one of the things you could get the impression from the news or whatever that like like all like this overwhelming amount of, of humanitarian aid is getting to the country and it is but when you're dealing with three million people it's a drop in the bucket and so they're getting this in uh, and Yaroslav he's you're going to get let's go ahead and you can hear from Yaroslav real quick they're brothers and sisters from uh, New Life Church. I'm Yaroslav Lukasik, a Polish missionary that worked in uh, Ukraine for 14 years. Before that, I worked in Belarus, in Minsk, for, four, for another 14 years. Uh, so I, I, I feel partly Ukrainian, I feel Belarusian. I am Eastern European. So uh, you all know what uh, was happened uh, one month and a half ago in Ukraine, you all know about this disaster that is happening in Ukraine. Uh, but, but in midst of all this disaster, there is some bright spot, spots. And uh, this is uh, solidarity. This is uh, this love that we feel from so many people from ac across the world. And such people are 
uh, Chad and uh, his wife Sean, their, their children that came to us two weeks ago. We spent great time together. They supported our, our activities. Uh, so uh, I, I know you, you all are one family, you have the same spirit that Chad and his family have. So I am in Lublin right now, it's a very strategic uh, place, in the, the biggest city in Eastern Europe that is very near to Ukrainian border. And we created here a network, we named Christians for Ukraine, that include churches, Christian organizations and people of goodwill from Ukraine, Poland and other countries that want to help Ukraine. So, our help includes humanitarian aid, so we send uh, trucks to Ukraine with food, medicine and uh, essential items. We support uh, um, a net network of shelters here in Lublin and Lublin uh, regions. Uh, we uh, support uh, evacuation, so we bought several vans and sent it to Ukraine and uh, there people like Victor and other courageous men, uh, they uh, take away people from danger places. Um, and also we, uh, we created and printed one million of such a prayer book of Ukrainians. So it's uh, this this small book help people, soldiers, refugees, other people in Ukraine uh, or in Poland, Ukrainians in Poland, help to pray. People want to pray. Even non-believer people pray during the war. So it's a great time for evangelization. It's a great time for growing churches. So we see as U Ukrainian churches in Poland are growing. So we want to. Uh, to support this evangelization, to support this growing of churches. I personally in, involved in uh, uh, developing of God's Light Church where I serve my kids here in Lublin. So thank you very much for uh, having such a privilege to share with you with this, uh, this message. And it's, it's great to know you, it's great to co cooperate with you for uh, for kingdom of God, for uh, helping our neighbors in in Ukraine. We don't know what will happen in uh, in two weeks or two months, in two years, but we know that we need to be with Ukraine that time. Thank you very much that you are with us. May the Lord bless you. He, he and his, his family uh, and so we are resourcing. We have more resources that we're sending this, this week to them. Uh, the third key effort has been focusing a few thousand dollars to help provide critically needed support to our primary handler and guide in Ukraine, Victor, who I uh, told you about in our primary translator. And Victor has just something short for you as, as well. Hello. My name is Victor. I'm serving as military chaplain here in Kiev from the beginning of the war. My main job here is assisting and supplying of military forces and civilians. I am sharing between them trauma kits, armored vests like this, and other necessary things what they need. I'm doing evacuation as well from Kiev to Lviv and border 
with Poland. Currently, I am evacuated 78 individuals to safe place from shooting of Russian invaders. Thank you very much for all your support and cooperation. Thank you very much for your prayers for my nation and my country. We are going to win this war and God is fighting with us. Thank you again. I love that guy. Can't you just feel it, babe? I'll let you go. So let's give my wife an applause. <laughs> She hasn't slept too much for the last few days. Uh, so for all of you that have given or chosen to give or, or will choose to give, I hope this gives you a glimpse. Uh, again, we have more resources that we're going to be sending to Victor and uh, to Christmas for Ukraine. And so I hope it gives you a chance because I, I, I don't want to just say thank you for those of you, again, that have given or will give. What I want to say for you to hear is that you have chosen to be a part of something that matters, that you aren't being late to the game and that you are taking what for most of us is our most, one of our most precious things because we work hard for it. We try to get a good job and accumulate money. But for those of us that are, are follow Jesus, for those of us that are Christians, for us, we believe that God is the one that enables us to produce income. And so we see ourselves as stewards rather than owners. And so it's a chance for us to say, hey, God, you know, you're the one who gave me this. I want to give part of that back. And so I want you to know that you've made a difference in real lives, even if it's for a moment. I mean, uh, you know, one of the questions that we didn't get to is like, what do you wish you could have made happen before you left? And my response is everything everything like it's like if we could have brought peace or if we couldn't bring peace to just resource all these people and get them to a better place and all that and, and what I kept having to remind myself is something that was said to me long ago just do for one what you wish you could do for all and so that's what we did there were a lot of refugees we didn't take shopping there were some of the the shelters we didn't get food for but we did what we could while we were there. We sought to be good stewards of what you sent us there to do or what you were praying about. We feel that God showed up in very real and dramatic ways every single day. Even there were moments, especially Western do mindset, there was no way we were going to take a break. It's like, no, there's work to be done. We got stuff to do. And then we felt the weight of it. People are not just praying, but people have, and churches have given hundreds and thousands of dollars. We have a responsibility to do. But there were a couple of moments during our trip where suddenly plans just didn't work out. And there was just literally nothing to do but to rest. And looking back, like the next day, we go like, man, we, we needed that. Or we were going to burn out at the rate that we were going. Um, and just taking a day just to do our laundry was therapeutic. So... Uh, but you, you have made a difference. And so there's not going to be time for open Q&A time, but obviously you can feel free to reach out to us and, and we'll be happy to answer any questions. And I, uh, again, there, there's things that we would love to say and share, but we're already over time. I, I just say the biggest thing that we learned is, uh, which I always kind of knew, but this was a real reminder. It doesn't matter what, what our culture, what our skin color, what our demographic, whatever that we come from, like, the way I was saying it over there before we left is that we found family that we didn't know we had 
We're just sorry it took, us a, war, took a war for us to find them. Because as we interacted with them, I, like, like Victor, I was like, if you lived in the United States, we would be best friends. Like, we would be together all the time. Like, you're awesome. I would make fun of how you say the and all this. And, you know, and you can make fun of the languages that I don't speak, that you speak all of them. But so uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to transition and dismiss all of you. God, I, I thank you so much for this opportunity that you gave Sean and I and for our community, not just New Life Wichita, but the city of Wichita and the, and the outskirts, people that across this country that were able to be inspired and join with us on this. And Father, I just confess, acknowledge Sean and I are nothing special. We just, we were in a position to do this and other people partner with us. And I thank you for what you've made happen, what you'll continue to make happen. Father, we pray for our friends and family and those in Ukraine and in Poland and, and those that are being scattered abroad, God, that, that you would show up in a very real and dramatic way in their life. Father, we pray for Russian leadership, that, Father, that you would intervene, that you would bring this to an end, the senseless killing of children and women and men and, and civilians and all for what? So, Father, I pray that you would intercede in this insanity and bring it to an end. Um, but, Father, for whether you do it today or a week or, or beyond, whatever, I pray, God, that you help those of us that say we believe in you to do more than just believe things but do things. And we thank you for the chance to do something. And, God, that you would sustain our new friends, our new family overseas as they continue to deal with this. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.